is that I want you to think of a specific date in either 1600, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, one of those centuries, all right? So I just want you to write down a specific date in, that, in those three eras, all right? To the left of your piece of paper, north towards the top. Now, to the right of that, with a little bit of space in the middle, I want you to write a specific date 85 years later. I know, I'm making you some math this morning. Then what I want you to do is I want you to put a dash in the middle. So hopefully it looks something like this, right? Date, dash, date. Month, day, year. A specific day in that era. All right? So mine is 8-7-1850-5-1-1935. dash So whatever... You got that? So does that look familiar in a sense of the format? It's something that we would probably see on a tombstone, a grave, something that we hand out at a funeral, right? This is what your or a life would be represented by. A birth date, a date specific that they passed away, and then a dash to represent everything that happened from the time they were born to the time that they um, passed away. And what we begin to see as we go through our life, as we read the Bible, as we see in the life of Jesus, that this is incomplete. That this is incomplete. And we need to add something to this. And so what I want you to do is I want you to add a dash right after so you have a birth date, a dash, and you have the ending date, and then you have another dash, and then there's no date after that. So what we begin to see, and I want you to keep this paper, what we begin to see is that we're looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of one of the gospel writers, and that gospel writer is Luke. And so we've been going through the book of Luke, and we, and all the gospel writers, they give us the account of Jesus' birth, and then his life, and then we're leading up to the account of when Jesus was killed on the cross, and then his resurrection, and then um, what he talks about, the life after, which represents that dash. And so what we're really saying here is that if you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, and the Bible that was given to us, then you would begin to realize that there is a life after this life, which represents that dash. And what we tend to do is we tend to look at that birth date, and we look at that dash, and we live for that dash. And what we're going to see is this upside-down life that we've been talking about clear from when we began that Jesus is saying to his disciples that your life with me is really an upside down life. And what I'm telling you is that we're not living for the dash in between the birth date and the date that you pass. What we are living for is that dash after. So I want you to um, I mean, think about it. 
Sometime Google, I did that this week. Sometime Google, just put in the word heaven in Google and just songs or, or books or movies. And you begin to realize that whether someone believes in God or not, there's just a lot, a lot of songs written about heaven. There's movies, there's books and references, there's sayings, right? Um, move heaven and earth and other kind of things that reference and use the word um, heaven. What I want you to do briefly here is I want you to talk to somebody next to you. And, and if you don't want to do that, that's fine. Pull out your phone and just, or bow your head and pray that you're praying, or pretend that you're praying, or pray, that's good, whatever. <laughs> um, but I want you to think about, talk about what kind of images, pictures, thoughts that you had about what heaven was like when you were small, when you were little, growing up, okay? Does that make sense? And then I want you to think about how has it changed as you've gotten older, and I want you to compare the two. So just quickly talk about that briefly, about what you thought, images you had in your mind about what heaven is like, typically right, the harp type of thing, right on the cloud, I don't know what it might be, but go ahead and talk about it, and then we'll come back. Okay, now I've got one more thing for you guys to do on your piece of paper before we pray and really dive into today's message. I want you to, on um, underneath that date and the arrows, I want you to write the phrase, can't wait to see, all right? Four words, can't wait to see. Write that, one, two, three, in a column. And then on, and I want you to think about three people that have a birth date, a dash, and an ending date that you can't wait to see in heaven. We're in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 20. We're going to set the stage. Uh, we're, we're entering that phase of Jesus' life where um, it's, it's that last week, right before that last week before Jesus um, goes through the town on a donkey and the palm branches are waving and he's being exalted to the Last Supper, to that week of um, being arrested and questioning his crucifixion, his burial, and then his resurrection. So we're right before, on the cusp of that in this particular text. And what we're beginning to see is there's this group of people called the Sadducees who were, um, they were uh, very, a very wealthy um, people, a group of people who tended to be wealthy. They, they rejected the oral tradition. In other words, it needed to be written. And they desired to preserve the status quo at all costs. And so this is a very religious group. They were very conservative uh, really the most religious conservative group amongst the Jewish people. And they revered only the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which we refer to as the Pentateuch or the Torah, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they revered, that was their manual, just those first five books, and so that's what they lived their life by. And what we began to see is that over the lifetime of Jesus on this earth, when he began his ministry, 
that several groups within the Jewish people began to question him because he was upsetting what was going on. So we had the Pharisees. We, we talked about, we learned about them and the questions that they have, the, the, um, the chief priests and the scribes and the nationalists and, and other people began to question Jesus as to his authority of why he claimed to be God, why he claims to be God's son, and, and who are you to say that you are going to be our Messiah, our king? And so now there's this one last group that wants to get in a question about Jesus, trying to trick him, trying to embarrass him, trying to trap him to let everybody know that this person is a fraud, that this Jesus is a fraud. And so they begin to formulate a question because they didn't believe, they denied the existence of angels in their particular theology, and they denied the existence of the resurrection. So those are two things that characterized um, the Sadducees. They denied the existence of angels, and they denied the resurrection. And so they formulated a question that they were pretty smug about that was going to trap Jesus because they felt like there was no way out of this question about the resurrection with Jesus. And so they um, formulated this question surrounding um, this idea of a Leverite marriage. And what that is, is that if there is a husband and wife that are married, and the husband passes away, and they have no children, that in the, the Levite law, it would say that the, 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 um, the next brother would then need to marry this wife to, um, so that they could hopefully have kids in the name of the former husband, if that makes sense, the former brother. It's kind of a weird law, but it was the law. And so the Sadducees formulated this scenario where... And we're going to read about it. Um, so Luke chapter 20. So some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. And they said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother, notice when they said Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that's what they revered. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's that Leverite law. Now, there were seven brothers. So they tried to make this as ludicrous as possible. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then... At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? This is the question that they were asking Jesus, since the seven were married to her. Then Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So here's the problem that the Sadducees presented to Jesus. They were trying to figure out, well, if there's a resurrection, then how are you going to... um, Uh, How are you going to solve this problem of seven husbands and one wife? And uh, who is the husband of the wife if there's a resurrection? And they thought, well, there's no way that Jesus is going to to be able to answer this question and get out of this. And they felt very smug that they were going to trap him. And he's a fraud. And we're going to get rid of him finally. But Jesus answers the question. And basically says this, is that the resurrection life is different. It's different than the life that we see now. See, the question that they presented had some presuppositions to it, and one of it was is that the life that's going to be after is the same as the life that we have now. And Jesus says, no, the resurrection life is going to be different. And there is a life after this life that we live on this earth. But it's not going to be like what we see now. And then he gives some scripture proof. And it's interesting that Jesus could have used another text in the Old Testament a little later on, but he chose to use a passage that we see in the book of of Exodus, I believe, that talks about the burning bush. Exodus Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And he uses that as a scripture proof to, to talk about that there is a resurrection because God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. And when he, when he talks about that particular text, that text relates to that God spoke to Moses and said, hey, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I can't be their God. I mean, I'm a God of the living. I'm not a God of the dead. And so if I'm naming them, you know, Jesus said, listen, this is what God's saying to Moses. This is what he said. Then How does it make sense that if God's not a God of the dead but a God of the living, then why would he say that I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And so here's the first first thing I want you to remember is that the afterlife is different, but it's real. The afterlife is different, but it's real. Our faith, those that put their faith in Jesus Christ, those that are, um, would call themselves Christians, everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything hinges on the resurrection. So Jesus lived. There's accounts of him living. There's accounts of his death and his burial. And there's also accounts of him being seen after all of that happened, the death and the burial. And the time between the actual event that happened and these manuscripts that we can find is a very short amount of time relative to the time that when the event happened and the manuscripts of other works that we don't question the legitimacy of these. And so we would say that that is historically accurate. It happened. It's part of history. And we base our faith on that, and we move forward. And so the afterlife is different, but it's real. And so there's going to be a life after that birth date, the dash, and that end date. There's another dash that we have to be, we have to think about, and we have to look to, towards. And so what Jesus is saying in this text 
is that the life in the coming age is different than what you experience and what we experience right now, and specifically as far as, far as it concerns marriage. You see, he's saying that marriage is no longer necessary in heaven in the life to come <coughs> because we no longer um, will die. We will, we will not die, so there's no need to repopulate. Um, we're, we're not going to die, and we're just going to keep going into eternity. And, and also, there's no need to glorify God through our marriage to let other people who don't know about Jesus see two people who are, who are imperfect in their earthly bodies, but who have said yes to Jesus. And because they're following Jesus as center, they're able to work through their differences, work through the sin in their life, and to be able to display um, this perfect union that gives glory to God and demonstrates how, the, how Jesus and the church work together. There's no need for that anymore because we're in heaven and we're enjoying the glory of our God and Jesus Christ for eternity at all times. And so marrying and getting married is not part of uh, this afterlife. Also, um, he says that, that we will be um, some, in some form like angels. Again, disputing what the Sadducees tended to believe that there was, or denying the existence of angels um, in their life. So two things that this text was, was really pointing out to us in the book of Luke. And, and first of all, um, it was sharing with the readers, you and I and those that were reading the text earlier, is it was really affirming Jesus' authority as king, as the Messiah. All the other groups have been questioning him, and he's answered every question perfectly, and he's lived his life perfectly. And here we have one last attempt from the Sadducees to question Jesus, and he answers it perfectly. And from that point forward, no one dared ask him a question. And so they figured that if they can't um, question him and, and embarrass him and trap him in public, then they're going to have to do something different. And then I believe that's when the formulation began to happen that, well, we need to arrest him and incite the crowd to kill him. We have to get rid of him somehow, discredit him. And so this was affirming the authority of Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the king of the Jewish people. The second thing is that um, it was teaching really the importance that the resurrection is a reality. The afterlife is real. And, and, and because of that, it sets up a hope that is very central to you and I as a son and daughter of God, as his adopted children. And it was very ex especially important to that Gentile audience because they tended to not believe that there was life after death. And so... Um, this resurrection was not something that was just wishful thinking or some philosophical, you know, trickery or whatever it might be. But what he's doing is he's assuring you and I that the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of Jesus is very real. And it's something that we can base our life on. Because it's a center, right? This hope that we have in heaven is at the center of who you and I are as a son, as a daughter. And so here's 
The next statement. We said that the afterlife is different, so there is an afterlife. We said that it's real, so it's going to be different than the life that we have now. It's real, and what I want to add is that we're not going to be disappointed. I mean, think about it just from this section of verses. The first thing that we notice is that they can no longer die. Jesus says they can no longer die, so that we will, when, when we are in heaven, when we're experiencing life with God, or life without God, we are not going to die again. We have a birth date, a dash, an end date, a, a day that we die, and then another dash, and there's no other date over here. We are not going to die again. And this life, and so that, that to me is amazing, right? When we're with God, that to me is amazing. We're not going to be disappointed. Not only that, but we're like the angels, and if we read in Scripture, we can read about what angels are like, and that seems like a pretty good life to me. And so we're going to be somewhat like that. So that's the second thing. The third thing, and this is just one passage, the third thing is that we're God's children. I mean, think about the God of the universe who created everything. Everything that you think is good created all of that, and you get to be his children now when you place your faith in him. But how even more that's going to be glorious when we're with him in heaven for eternity, to be able to talk and dialogue and all of that. And then the third thing, one of the privileges of being um, a citizen of his kingdom, which we are when we say yes to him, is this promise of spending eternity in heaven, right, that this place is not going to disappoint us. And there's many passages in the New Testament that talk about what heaven is going to be like. But then throughout the Bible, we're encouraged to live in light of that future. And so the afterlife is different. It's real. It won't, we won't be disappointed. So then let's live like it. Let's live like this life is going to be different. It's, it's real, and we're not going to be disappointed. So then let's live our present life, that dash in between, like that is true. This week, well, let me go a different route. I, I, ride, I ride bike. I like to ride my bike. And in Kearney, I had a specific trail that I would ride my bike on. And it would take me anywhere between 25 minutes to 50 minutes, depending on how long I go. But when I first started, when I would ride my bike, I would um, get discouraged pretty easily because it was hard. And I would go, <clears throat> and I would come back and be more difficult. But I began to realize as I was, I was writing it every day that there was little points along the way that signified I'm halfway or I'm three-quarters way or I'm now home. And every time I would hit, I mean, I would drudge, and I would, if I would hit that halfway point or if I would hit that three-quarters point or if I would see that street that would lead me to home, I began to pick up my pace and I began to feel less tired, even though I physically probably wasn't. But there was something that inside me goes, wow, I'm almost there or I'm halfway done, or I'm three-quarters way done, or I'm almost home, and I began to pick up the pace, and it was very encouraging to me. Well, that's kind of what I think, what, that's what heaven, right? When we look towards heaven, when I say that this dash at the end needs to influence the dash in the middle, that's what I mean. Like when I get to that halfway point, that three-quarter point, or I see my house, or when we see something come up and that encourages us to keep going, to keep persevering, because at the end we know it's going to be glorious, 
and it gives us encouragement. That's what I mean by letting that dash at the end influence the dash in the middle. Let it encourage you. Let you persevere through the tough things in life, knowing that one day I'm going to be with my God. And unfortunately, we tend to think about heaven far less than what we should. I was reading an article the other day, and it listed several things about heaven that I thought were very, very good. And this is where that list comes into play that you had before. And one of the things that we know to be true about heaven, according to the Bible, is that we are going to have these perfected, resurrected bodies. We don't necessarily know what that's going to be like. But this is what he wrote, and I want to read it to you, and then we're going to apply it to these three people that we wrote down. But he says, when I picture my grandfather in heaven, I picture him as he looked down, as he looked toward the end of his life, because that is when I knew him. But of course, he won't have an aged, broken down, 84-year-old body in heaven any more than those who die in infancy will remain infants for all eternity. Everyone in heaven will have a perfected, resurrected body. And so here is the thought, he said, that my grandfather greeting my children in heaven and all of them hugging his equals. I mean, that to me is pretty cool, right? His statement was, all saints are equal. All saints are equals. And so somehow there's going to be this equalization that happens from the infants to people who die when they're older and all these. I mean, think about it. That I don't know. Some, some people think that this perfect age is right in the middle of the 30s, right? So some of you are there. So you're living the perfect part of your life. Everything before that was not. Everything after that's not. So you're right there. How many are in the 30s? Yeah. All of you, enjoy it. Because anything after and before, no, I'm just messing. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be incredible. It's going to be perfection. And the people that I wrote, my wife and I had uh, a little boy or girl, don't know, who died, you know, stillborn. Or, I mean, miscarriage. So I'm excited. <laughs> I get to see that boy or that girl in this perfected resurrection body. I get to see Brindley, who was um, the, our granddaughter of our oldest daughter, who lived for all seven minutes on this earth. I get to see her in this perfected, resurrected body. And then the third person I put down was my grandpa Andres, my dad's dad. I did not get to see him a whole lot because they lived in Canada and we didn't have the money to go visit them a ton. But what I remember about him is that he always, always had a smile on his face. And he just seemed to love life all the time. Even when he was sick, even when he's in a nursing home, it just seemed like, I really want to get to know you. I really want to get to know you. So I'm looking forward to hanging out with our fourth child our first granddaughter, and my grandfather. I mean, that to me is going to be amazing. And I'm sure there's many. I don't know who you put down, but thinking about that, about that is going, ah, this is incredible. 
Not only that, but all of us are going to be friends, brothers and sisters in heaven. And so you get to, you get to have, I mean, because there's no end date to that dash. It means that you have all of years and years and years and years and years to just visit with whoever you want to, right? Pick any character from any person from history, any person from the Bible, and you get just to ask and to hang out with them and whatever that might look like. To me, that seems incredible. The third thing that he talked about, which I think is also incredible, is that sadness is permanently unmade. Now, this is what he wrote. We know that earthly sadness cannot enter into heaven. This is true because, but the Bible seems to point to something even more profound. That heaven will enter into our earthly sadness. Um, Specifically referencing Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 where it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Remember we talked about how this verse was written after, so it's, it's written after everyone that has said yes to Jesus is in heaven. It's written after all the things that we've done in his name will go through that refining fire and whatever is, will, what goes through will last in eternity. Whatever it doesn't will be burned up and won't. And so every, this is verse is written after that. And so what he says is that um, we're not going to weep in heaven. He's going to wipe away our tears. And so the imagery of God wiping away our tears seems to suggest So it's not definite, but it seems to suggest consolation for, as well as the end of, earthly grief. Heaven will not merely end our pain. Somehow it will mend it. A pastor in New York called Tim Keller, this is what he wrote. He said, resurrection means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. That, to me, is good news. Every mean word that was said about you, every abuse, every bad thing, everything that you had done, every guilt, every piece of shame, whatever, happened to you that you think about somehow it's not just going to wipe away the tear but he's going to mend it imagine yourself in heaven and the God of the universe summons you by name and I imagine that there'll be a bit of like trembling, right? We know he's good, but it seems a little bit scary. And this is what he wrote. He surgically draws up the deepest wound of your life, healing you and transforming your pain into glory and joy. And then he writes this statement. He said, such imagery is tender to the point of embarrassment. Dare we believe it? And then he goes, dare we not? I mean, that to me is incredible, an incredible part of heaven that we don't think about a ton. And then, of course, the pinnacle is that we 
are going to see Jesus. We're going to see the person that we've been talking about, that we pattern our life after, that we want to be like, the person who was obedient unto death for you and I, and we get to hang out with him. We get to talk with him. We can hug him and all of these things and just say thank you and, and all of that. But even more than that, we're going to be able to, in our innermost being, behold the glory of Jesus as God, as his son, and all of that. And to me, <laughs> that is just amazing. I mean, that's just a glimpse of heaven. That's just a glimpse of heaven. And what he's saying here in this text is that that should influence that if, I mean, the afterlife is real and you're either going to spend your life with God or you're going to spend your life without God. But there's no dash either way. I mean, there's a dash, but there's no end date either way. And with God is all these things that we've been describing. Without God, it's opposite. But with God is all these things we're describing. And that should then influence the dash in between, the life that I live right now. I mean, we struggle with our life, don't we? There's lots of things that go on. We struggle, right? There's things that happen in our life that, that are not necessarily good things. And um, for me, some of you know, and if you're new, then I'm going to tell you, but I'm a picky eater. I mean, really picky. My wife's a saint because she has claimed that over the years we've been married, her, her, her um, cooking, her baking has gotten really boring because I don't want a whole lot of variety. So I'm very, so pray for my wife. I mean, she's such a, a godly woman. Um, but I don't, I like fruit, but I don't like fruit, if that makes sense. So I will eat an apple, a grape, or an, or an orange. But when I do, um, I have this weird thing in my taste buds that if it's tart or anything like that, I just, I mean, and my wife will eat it, and she goes, well, what's wrong? And I'll eat it, and my face will just, scrunch up and just water will come down. It's just weird. But I'll eat it because I, I like it to some degree, but it just like, ah, I don't eat a lot of it. Right? So that to me represents the life that we live. But the other day, this past week, she um, cut up an apple, one like this, and I decided, well, I'm going to take a slice because I know I need to. It's healthy. It's good for my body. And when I bit into it, it was like, oh, you know, <laughs> I have never, and I'm not over-exaggerating, and you can talk to my wife, I have never, ever eaten a piece of fruit like this. I mean, it was simply, and it's again, I'm spitting all over. It's so, so good. And it's changed my outlook. Well, especially this particular brand of apple. But so much so that this is a Pacific rose. I said, Janet, we have to find out where they're selling these. We have to go right now and buy a bunch. I don't care how much per pound they are. We're buying them because they are so good. 
right? It changes how I'm viewing. This is so good. Sorry. <laughs> that to me is what I feel like heaven is like. Like we don't know until we taste and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so he's redeemed us and he's continually redeeming us and that. But we're not going to get the full thing until we get to heaven. But that little taste, that little bit should influence then our life. It should be like biting into a Pacific rose apple. And go, wow. And then it influences the rest of our life together. And I realize that the illustration somewhat breaks down. I'm going to close with this and then we can worship. Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He need only convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation and we'll set our minds on this life and not the next and we won't be motivated to share our